I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. As spring approaches, the scenery around us is changing. Buds are opening, trees are starting to green, and the scent of new flowers is beginning to fill the air. But as we see the plants around us come to life, we also need to think about taking care of the supporting cast. The wildlife. According to the 2019 State of Nature report, 41% of UK species studied have declined and over 130 species have already been lost since 1970. These are startling figures. And as gardeners, we all have a great responsibility to protect the creatures that call our gardens home. With hard work, careful gardening and thoughtful planning, we can all play a part in rescuing our native wildlife. <laughs> This is the RHS Gardening Podcast. I'm Jenny Bowden. Today, our aim is to arm you with the skills and knowledge to be an effective wildlife gardener. I've come out into the grounds here at RHS Garden Wisley, where the gardening team are hard at work preparing for the new season. I'm joined by James Lawrence, our Principal Horticultural Advisor. Hi, James. Hello, Jenny. I'd like to start by questioning the term wildlife gardening, because isn't all gardening wildlife gardening? Yes, I think you're, you're right there. I think the problem with the term wildlife gardening is that people seem to think that they have to have their garden entirely devoted to wildlife, whereas the truth is we can all do a little bit for wildlife. You can start small with a small area or a particular feature and then hopefully build from there, which makes the whole task of having a wildlife garden a bit less daunting. So what kind of things could we be looking at? I mean, I've got a garden at home and basically the wildlife just comes so what specific things could we be looking at what elements would we include so there are certainly some elements that i think uh, will help with a successful wildlife garden um, having some kind of water within the garden is very useful so ponds if you can but any other source of water can be helpful as well healthy soils everything does start from the soil so the whole systems that we have with the soil organisms and then all the other creatures that rely on those are important for that wider wildlife context so are you saying make a compost heap i'm saying if you can make a compost heap and reuse materials which obviously has its own environmental benefits then by improving the soil that way you'll have more soil organisms and a better basis if you like for all these other creatures that can come in as a result of that so you talked about having water in the garden what ways could you do that if you don't have a big area 
So if you haven't got space for uh, what we might think of as a traditional pond, there are other ways you can get water into the garden. Some people might have barrels or containers which are designed to have water in them, and they can still attract some insects and some birds that might come to bathe in them or to drink from them. Well, I really like the idea of having water in the garden. It's going to be good for humans as well as wildlife, hasn't it, when you're wildlife gardening? Absolutely, and I think that's something that not everyone recognises. So there's a whole link as well between wildlife and well being so the reasons for having wildlife can benefit the creatures can bring more of them into the garden but it's also of great benefit to the individual and to the garden themselves when i was thinking about this piece i was really thinking you've got two ways of looking at the wildlife gardening you've got providing homes for wildlife and then you've got providing the food for wildlife it's like a bit of a venn diagram really and then you obviously it meets in the middle so in terms of providing food, nectar, pollen for creatures, what can we be doing? So I think it's important to have a range of different plant types within a garden, particularly if you're trying to attract wildlife. And the food element of that can come, for example, from berries, from certain trees and shrubs in particular, from hedgerows. And then on a smaller scale, there's some of the smaller plants, there's seed heads, which are quite important for some birds in particular. But it's really about having that variety of different plant groups from the trees down into the lower canopies, the hedges, ground cover plants as well, and then some herbaceous plants. That way you attract a wider variety of creatures. And what would be your favourite plants for attracting whatever group of creatures you'd like to attract? What really stands out? Which group of creatures and which set of plants attract them? Well, I think that's an interesting point and something I would advise to people is to, you know, you have to start somewhere and trying to do everything at once. So perhaps if you start with some of the structural elements, so the trees, things like sorbus, which are mountain ash or rowan trees, they produce berries which are very popular with quite a few birds. So that would certainly help. And there are certain shrubs like pyracantha, which is also known as the firethorn, which again can be attractive. So once you start getting in some of those structures, some of those trees and the shrubs, then you can start thinking about some of the other plants that might be more specific to individual creatures. Are there a few plants that you'd like to pick out that you think are particularly effective if you've got containers or a border that you'd like to plant up? Yes, so I think the important thing here for borders or containers is to try and have some plants that give you a continuation across the seasons. So you increase the uh, amount of time where there are flowers available for wildlife. In borders, there are certainly things like teasels, which give you a nice bit of structure. And when the flowering is finished, they're very important with their seed heads. So that can have a dual interest. Lots of things for containers that you might use. Used to be known as sedum, often now is referred to as hylotelephium, which gives you some later flower, which is really good for the later pollinators when there's not as much other things around. So it's still quite early in the season, but we are getting on for March now. Some bees have been out since January, February on good days. What are they and what do they enjoy visiting? Yeah, it's a very good point. I think there are bees that are out early, particularly some species of bumblebee that could be out early. It's about having that range of plants that gives you some flower throughout the seasons. So having some earlier flowering late winter and into early spring flowering plants is really vital for bees in particular and the bumblebees which brave the colder weather. What kind of plants would you include in that? Things like hellebores could be useful. Um, There's quite a few winter flowering shrubs that might also attract 
I think the thing is to look at the structure of those flowers as well. Even crocuses can be useful. Just make sure you've got some winter flowering plants. And finally, have you got three tips that we can really just put into action? It's springtime, everyone's getting enthusiastic. What could we be doing now that's going to attract a bit more wildlife to the garden? Three tips, please. Okay, I think the first tip I would give is to really think about the range of plants that you have in your garden or that you can use. So that idea I mentioned earlier of having the layers or the canopy. So having some kind of tree or large shrub or hedges, which are very important for a lot of wildlife, and then working down to some of the lower ground cover plants, for example, and some of the flowering plants that last through the seasons or that follow on from each other i think my second tip would be to try and incorporate water in some way shape or form so if you haven't got room for a pond as we mentioned then getting water in 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 another way would be really beneficial and thirdly i think don't be too tidy so leave a few areas that can be a little bit wilder that might be longer grass it might be a log pile Um, and i think if you do those three things that will really get you off to a good start They're brilliant. Really good suggestions. Thank you, James. You're welcome. James mentioned there the importance of the humble bumblebee. Our own Gareth Richards is someone on the team here that has a particular love of bees, tending to his own hives. I wanted to get his take on the wonder of the bee in the garden. Bees put you in your place because they make you realise we're all just part of a much larger system. And there are things that you'll never understand and things that you'll never know. But that's okay. It all started with a packet of seed. When I was really small, I was transfixed by a marigold in the garden. It was an English marigold. And that vibrancy of colour blew me away. And inside that flower, there was a bee. And I've got this really vivid memory of that searing orange of the flower and the sort of fuzzy yellow fur of the bee. My granny saw me looking at this flower and she gave me a packet of seeds and I grew these marigolds and they were my first plant and that sparked a lifelong love of gardening. I always gardened as a teenager even when it was horribly uncool and then as I got further into life I got an allotment, I got chickens and I forgot about the bees really. And then when I got settled I finally had a garden of my own, I had an allotment, I had these chickens and I thought, now what? So there was an abandoned plot behind my allotment and it was waist high in brambles and I thought, well, I'll turn this into something beautiful and useful. So I turned it into a permaculture garden. I started planting fruit trees and things like that, useful edible plants, so that everyone on the allotment site could make use of this unloved space. And one day I was looking at it and I chopped off a bit, you know, I planted everything there and the rest was shoulder height in brambles and those brambles were alive with bees. And I thought, why not get a beehive in here? So we cut a clearing into the brambles. Suddenly this magical space opened up where all you could see were trees, the bramble flowers buzzing with bees, and you couldn't see the fact that the allotment's in the middle of an industrial estate and there was just this oasis of calm. So I got the bees, I put them in, And it changed the way I saw myself, it changed the way I saw gardens, it changed the way I saw the world a bit. 
there's something ethereal about bees. We plod along, we're looking at our feet, we're looking at our phones, we fix to the ground. The chickens on the allotment, they scratch around in their enclosure. The plants are in their tight little rows, but the bees fly above all of that, they're free. And they remind us that we're part of something bigger. And I think they make us better gardeners. And they remind us that we're inseparable from nature. I never expected when I got a beehive that I'd end up watching them so much. It's a bit like having an open fire. There's something you're drawn to. One of the things I like the most is watching them come in when they're rearing brood, because then they bring in pollen to the hive. And I'd never appreciated. I thought pollen was just yellow stuff in the middle of flowers. But pollen can be black, it can be bright orange, it can be green, it can be a whole myriad of colours. And that will tell you what the bees are feeding on at that moment. Another sort of unexpected pleasure of beekeeping is the sensory aspect of it. So that wonderful scent you get when you lift the combs for an inspection. The scent of warm wax, the propolis, which is their glue. And it reminds me that bee senses are quite different to ours. They're almost blind in human terms, but yet they see polarised and UV light. They communicate through scents and pheromones. And they communicate through dancing and they listen through their feet. The more you find out about bees, the more you realise just how fantastic they are and how superbly they're adapted to do what they do. I think beekeeping is a real privilege that these creatures, they're not domesticated, they're sort of between, they're half wild, half domesticated, and they let us into their world. And when you taste that first honey from your own beehive, it's like everything glorious about summer just distilled into one beautiful golden liquid. I'm Gareth Richards, and I love bees. It's good to hear people talking about bees and their love for bees. And, of course, the most important thing is the pollination. They probably provide sort of a huge proportion, perhaps up to 80% of all the pollination that needs to take part. So they're just tiny little small insect, but it's just essential for our survival. And that, that seems really, really symbolic. I found a quote, Bees are the batteries of orchards, gardens, guard them. And that's by Carol Ann Duffy. That really is true. They power the orchards, get the plants pollinated, and without them we can't really survive. So there's an awful lot in those tiny little creatures. As we know, bees aren't the only creatures that benefit from the plants in our gardens. Thinking about British wildlife, an interesting point to remember is that the average garden here in the UK contains around 70% non-native plants. So are we even growing the right kind of plants to support our native insects and bugs? This is a subject that's been on the minds of our science team for the past 10 years, who have just completed their third research paper from a study called Plants for Bugs. Let's join our resident science boffin, Guy Barter, in discussion with principal entomologist Andy Salisbury, one of the architects of the study. Andy, where did your fascination with this topic begin? Well, it's always been assumed that wildlife gardening should really be about planting native plants in your garden. But with a little bit of inspiration from the Wildlife Gardening Forum, the RHS was actually asked, is that really true? Is it really natives that are best for wildlife in your garden? 
The Wildlife Garden Forum. Many people won't know what that is. Could you explain? The Wildlife Gardening Forum is an independent small charity with the remit basically of promoting wildlife gardening. And when did you start this study? When did your interest in it begin? There has always been this question about whether natives really are best wildlife. And so our, our interest in starting the project was um, in late 2008. We were pushed towards doing it. And how long did the study go on for? The study itself, the field work, lasted for four years. But there was such a lot of data generated, such a lot of preparation work, that it taken us over ten years to get the final results out. And now after you're coming to the end of it... Can you sum up what you actually learnt? Well, what we learnt is is it doesn't necessarily have to be native plants in your garden only that are good for wildlife. You can have closely related northern hemisphere plants will also provide for wildlife and even southern hemisphere exotics will provide habitat for wildlife. So northern hemisphere plants, does that mean ones in North America as well as in Europe? It does indeed. Some of the plants in the experiment were North American, but they were generally closely related to some of our native plants, so often in the same genus. And what we found with those is they were almost as good as our native plants. Our native plants always did come on top for abundance and diversity of invertebrates. The near natives usually came second to the northern hemisphere closely related plants and the exotics came a little bit further behind i just wonder if for the benefit of the listeners we can think of any plants that are southern hemisphere ones that they might recognize for instance from the southern here you've got some of the hardy fuchsia species and some of the pollinators really did like them it's known that bumblebees do like uh, the hardy fuchsias some of the verbenas again are visited by pollinators and when it comes to sort of evergreen plants things like petasporum can also provide that a bit of habitat over the winter for overwintering insects so Andy, did you find what you expected to find at the beginning of the experiment? That's always a difficult one to answer with an experiment because you, you go into an experiment with a hypothesis, which is you're either going to find your hypothesis is correct or it's not. So we were hypothesising that there was no difference between these plots. And we found that there was differences between the plots and the different groups of plants, the natives, the northern hemisphere, closely related, and the exotics. To call that a surprise, after four years of work, collecting data, identifying things, and number crunching for a couple of years, probably not really that much of a surprise what came out of it. But it's generally great information and trying to break that myth that you only plant natives for wildlife. And of these different groups of insects, did some prefer native plants and some prefer near natives and some prefer exotics or was it fairly evenly distributed? It was fairly evenly distributed. We saw similar patterns for most of these groups. Generally, it was natives, then the near natives, then the um, exotics, which were the order of preference. But there were some exceptions. Spiders didn't seem to care. They were found in sort of equal abundance uh, and diversity across all the treatments. It didn't really matter um, what it was. The spiders also gave us one of the slightly more surprising results. We generally found the more plants you have in a garden, the more invertebrates you'll have. Apart from with the spiders, uh, the ground hunting spiders, we found that you got more of them if you had less plants and you had more open ground. Did this rather surprise you, given the um, emphasis that we make on planting native plants? Well, in, in some ways, yes. I mean, it, it more surprisingly that we actually saw this result in our plots. Um, we saw so many differences in our plots and we were able to come up with the conclusions we did. But yeah, look, different habitats support different things. And to be able to say that a little bit of bare ground is not really a problem in a garden, it does have its own wildlife, was quite a, a surprise, yes. I'm sure gardeners are going to be really interested in these results, mm. but are there three simple tips that you can give gardeners that they can do right away 
Get out there and garden. Plant more. The more greener you've got out there, the more invertebrates there will be. And we all have heard the news and reports of insect declines, invertebrate declines, and the more gardeners can do, the better. Don't worry too much about what you're planting, but if you are really concerned, maybe head towards a, a few more native plants than and plants around the world and plant some stuff that will flower a bit later for some of our pollinators. And by a bit later, you mean sort of, what, September or September, August? October, November, in, even throughout the winter. There are insects active throughout the winter months. I wonder if you've got a top tip for a, a late flowering plant. Um, something like Mahonia is a fantastic plant that will be visited by bumblebees throughout the winter. So Andy, where is this wealth of information available to the general public? It's all available on the RHS website. There's some wonderful bulletins that we've prepared which should be easy to understand for the home gardener. Just search Plants for Bugs on the RHS website. Thank you very much, Andy. Thanks to Guy and Andy. If you'd like to read more on the study, you can do so in the March edition of The Garden magazine. One other big way you can benefit the creepy crawlies around your garden is to build a bug hotel. Now, you can buy these off the shelf, but in many cases, I found some of those bug hotels are badly built, rendering them, quite frankly, useless. So what makes a good one? Dr Hayley Jones, an entomologist in the RHS plant health team, is here with some useful tips. Bug hotels tend to come in different forms. Bee hotels are the ones that are often most popular, that are sold in lots of shops. But when we talk about bug hotels, we really mean all these kinds of um, shelters that you can create for invertebrates and other animals in your garden. The ones that you see that are made of different piled up bits of material, things like pine cones, dried grass and straw and logs, they're all to provide sheltering places for different animals like ladybirds, springtails, woodlice, and then sometimes bigger animals as well like toads and hedgehogs. It's quite easy to create these shelters. The simplest version is just a compost heap. Any piled up plant material that's slowly rotting down will be nice and warm and a great place to hide when you're a small animal. If you'd like a more structured, visually impressive bug hotel, you might want to build something that has different distinct layers with different materials in it. Things that are commonly used for this are pine cones, because they look very nice, logs piled up. These are good when you do want to go bug hunting. You can look between them and turn them over to see what creatures are lurking there. You can also have different plant stems, some of which might be hollow and dried grass and things like that, all piled up in different textures. Often a structure that's seen looks a bit like a bookshelf where the different shelves have different materials on each of them. And if it has a fairly solid roof, then it won't break down too quickly and so you'll be able to enjoy its appearance for a longer time. One type of bug hotel, and probably the most common type of bug hotel, is a bee hotel. And these are targeted at solitary bees. In the wild, solitary bees would use hollow plant stems to lay their eggs inside. So they lay an egg, provision it with a bit of nectar and pollen, and then just leave it alone. Unlike the social bees, which look after their young, they would just leave it. The bee larvae would eat that, finish growing and emerge from that tube. So we can recreate some of those habitats by making some tubes. You often see these in the form of bamboo or other hollow plant stems gathered into a bundle, but holes drilled in wood works just as well. 
So this can be pretty easy to make one for yourself. If you've got some uh, nice untreated wood, you can drill holes of different widths into it or get some of those bamboo tubes and gather them up into a bundle. It's often better for these bee hotels to have a number of small bee bed and breakfasts rather than a big bee hotel because you can get a build-up of parasites that affect the bees. And so if there's fewer smaller places for the bees to be gathered, then that's a bit more natural and less likely to lead to the build-up of these parasites. There's been lots of interest in pollinators recently, and so you can buy lots of bee hotels and bug hotels in shops, online and in garden centres. But some of these ready-made products might not be as useful and safe as something that you could make yourself following some of the instructions that you can get from the internet. One of the biggest problems that we often see with ready-made bee hotels is that they're too shallow. They need to have at least 10 centimetres depth for each of the tubes to be suitable for most of the bee species that we expect to see in them. So if you do want to buy one, make sure that it's at least 10 centimetres deep. You don't want ones that are treated with too much paint and varnish because not only is that kind of increasing the carbon and plastic footprint of the product, but it's not going to be that appealing to the bees. For bug hotels, you can buy ready-made ones and these often can be very attractive looking, but their real purpose is to get people interested and engaged in the wildlife in their garden and they're not necessarily going to be a super useful tool for the wildlife that you've already got. But if you want something really visible to help teach people about the wildlife in their garden then they do have a place. So my top three tips for building a bug hotel. Number one is use materials you already have in your garden like logs and twigs, pine cones, dried grass, all that kind of stuff can be really useful. Number two is pile them up and let it be messy. Don't be too worried about it being really tidy and clean because that's the opposite of what the wildlife want. And number three is think about having lots of little bee hotels and bug hotels in different parts of your garden rather than just one big one which is going to keep them all together in one place. Thanks to Hayley. I think from our show today I've really got the message that no matter what you plant, as long as you're planting, that's the most important thing. The wildlife will just come. Wherever there's plants, there's life really. I'd really like to see your own wildlife gardening in action. Send me pictures via Twitter. Use the handle at the underscore RHS with the hashtag RHS podcast. For more information on all of the tips we've discussed in this episode, you can visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, it's a goodbye from me, Jenny Bowden, and the rest of the podcast team. Thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. 
It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.